Amen. If you have your Bible and want to turn to Romans chapter 9, this is our fifth lesson, I believe, from the ninth chapter of Romans. It is our 60th lesson overall from the book of Romans. And so we've been at this for quite a while now. It is an expository study through the book of Romans. And in chapter 9, chapters 9 and 10 and, and even 11 deal with the same subject. And we see some, I was telling the guys in my office this morning, it seems almost repetitive. We're going back to the same point week after week after week. It's because Paul is making the same point verse after verse after verse. And so the last several weeks are going to kind of have blended together. Today's passage uh, kind of brings some culmination to that, but still, we'll, we'll still be the question that gets asked today. We'll be discussing for weeks on down the road as we move forward. What happens at this point, we're starting at Romans chapter 9, verse 19, and at this point, uh, Paul anticipates a potential objection to what he said thus far in chapter 9, and uh, he presents that objection in the form of a question. And that question is argumentative in nature, and the mindset from which it springs is arrogant. And the individual that asked that question would be trying to twist Paul's previous statements, the things he's already said in this corner, in this chapter, and try to twist them to force him into a corner and put the blame for human sin on God rather than on man where it belongs. This essentially is the doctrinal error that arises from this chapter of Romans, and it's an error that is still widely circulated today. We've been careful to stress from the very beginning that the subject of chapter 9 is Israel and that Paul has been dealing with the sovereign right of God to make the nation of Israel accomplish his sovereign purpose. That is God's right. And so God determined before Jacob was ever born to use him instead of Esau. To bring that to pass. He rejected Esau before Esau was ever born, Paul said. He rejected Esau. That's God's sovereign right. He is using that nation to bring his purpose to come to pass. And he can determine how he's going to do that. He's God, after all. Amen? But some students of the Bible have made the mistake of applying these verses that deal with natural Israel and spiritual Israel and have taken that instead and have applied it to humanity in general. And as a result, they see this portion of Romans that we're discussing, have discussed for the last two weeks and are discussing this morning as an explanation for why some people are saved and other people are lost. And essentially they do what Paul has perceived they will do. They lay the blame for lost humanity at the throne of God. They make it God's fault. It is a false doctrine. It's a doctrine of unconditional predestination. And it springs from the view that God determines the eternal fate the salvation of an individual before they are ever born. And that is not what Paul has said, and that is not what Paul is saying. 
The, the idea is that God decides before you're ever born whether or not you're going to be a part of the elect. And ultimately, then, you have no real choice about your own salvation. That is an erroneous statement. It is an erroneous extension of the idea that man plays absolutely no role in the, in the salvation of his soul. It's based on a, a belief system that takes the statements about being saved by faith instead of works and turns them on their head and goes so far as to believe that saving faith is a work of man, so it's something that man couldn't even produce for himself, so God has to give it to him. They make the illogical leap of faith that, that the faith that saves us has to come from God and so God decides before we're ever saved, before we're ever born, before we ever even enter this life, whether or not we have what it takes to be saved. And, and the, 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 the end result of that is that they believe that there are some who are born who cannot be saved. There are some who might sit on a church, hear a preacher preach the gospel, that, that don't have the opportunity that simply cannot be saved because God decided before they were ever born that they would not be saved. In the end, that doctrine presents the, the, the situation where you have no real say in the matter. It's God's will that decides whether you're saved or not. And so they bring the objection... If it all rests on the God, uh, on the will of God, if it's all God's fault, if it's all that God does, who can resist the will of God? That's the very question then that Paul brings up in Romans chapter 9 and verse 19. The text says this, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will, that being God's will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that thou repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. I'm going to start with verse 19. That is our text through verse 24. Verse 19 said, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will. The question is essentially this. How can God find fault with those who cannot resist his will? If, if God has the power, if God decides, the assumption is that the will of God is settled and cannot be broken. Therefore, if God rejected Esau before Esau was ever born and he didn't have a chance at salvation, then he had no real choice in the matter. From the beginning, that argument is a misunderstanding of what Paul was writing. Paul never said that Esau's salvation was settled before he was born. Paul said that it was settled before Esau was born that he was going to use Jacob to bring natural Israel to come to pass. He never determined that this is what we know about God. 
We know that God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden, right? And we know that it was God's will that they have fellowship with him. We know that he made them for that purpose. If God ever presumed before man was born to determine the purpose of that man's life, it was Adam. He decided, I'm going to make a man and I'm going to put him in that garden. I'm going to have fellowship with him. But we also know that God put a tree in that garden that would give man the freedom of choice. He would decide, he would determine whether or not he would be in fellowship with God. And we know that God never overrode man's will. He never overrode man's choice. It was essentially Adam's choice. He would decide whether or not he would be in fellowship with God. That's always been. That's a fundamental foundation of the word of God. It's called the freedom of choice or free will. We were created as free moral beings. We had that ability to choose. If we go to heaven, it'll be because we chose to follow him. It'll be because in faith we responded obediently to the word of God. If we go to hell, it will be because we made that bed for ourselves. We made that choice. Ultimately, we have that choice. And so from the beginning, Paul was never talking about Esau's individual salvation. He was talking about the fact that God rejected Esau as the vehicle by which God's purpose would come to pass. The will of God is a multifaceted thing. The question is, who can resist the will of God? And so the verse hinges on an understanding of the will of God. Now, I'm going to take a few moments this morning, and I'm going to discuss the will of God and the various aspects of his will. And I'm not going to plumb the depths and the breadth and the width of it, but if you'll allow me for a few minutes, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the will of God. Bible scholars will tell you that there, there is a preceptive will of God and a purposive will of God. Now, don't get lost in the words, because I want to explain what they mean. The one, the preceptive will of God can be violated. The other, the purpose of will of God cannot be violated. The idea of, of the preceptive will of God is based on the precepts of God. Let me explain what it means. It's a will of God that's based on God's precept. When God said, thou shalt not steal, it was obvious that it was God's will, God intended for those who received that commandment not to steal. It's what God wanted, right? God didn't give the command, thou shalt not steal, so that men would steal. It was God's precept, God's preceptive will, that men who received that commandment would not steal. Another example would be 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, where Peter tells us, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We can take from that verse the fact that it's not God's will that anybody would ever go to hell. It's not God's will that any man would ever be lost. It is God's will based on the precept that the gospel is to whosoever will that all men would come to a place of repentance. That's God's will. Amen? But the preceptive will of God can be rejected by men because men have 
freedom of choice. They have their own human will. They are not bound to the precepts of God. Men have the power to disobey God in that regard. There, there are penalties that go with that. You, you can disobey God and think you're getting away with it. You can disobey God because you have that will and, and you have that right and you can live your life contrary to the precept of God, but the judgments of God will eventually be brought to bear on you if you do that. There are consequences to breaking the precept will of God, but that doesn't mean it can't be done. Amen? If you, if you transgress the precepts of God, if you defy the will of God in that way, you're going to face the judgment of God. It was never God's will for you to face the judgment of God. It was his will that every man would repent and come to salvation. But if you break that will of God, you'll face God's judgment. If it wasn't possible for the preceptive will of God to be broken, then all of humanity would ultimately be saved. Because Peter said very plainly that the will of God is that all men would come to a place of repentance. Notice he didn't say it's God's will that all men would arbitrarily be saved. It was God's will that all men would obey the gospel. You got to repent. There was something there that man had to do. It wasn't that God willed that everybody would just be saved. It was God willed that everybody would repent, would come to that place of repentance. And so it put it back into the hands of man. The goodness of God does not want to condemn any man to hell. It's never been God's will that his creation would suffer for all of eternity with the devil in a place that he created for the devil and the fallen angels. That was never God's will. But God will not force his will on humanity any more than he forced Adam and Eve to serve him in the garden. Man will make his own choice. And God will make it abundantly clear what he desires for man to do. He will put his precepts out there. He'll put his law out there. He'll put his word out there. He'll make it known what he desires for humanity to do. He'll make it known what he requires. He'll establish the standard for moral conduct. He'll establish his law of what is right and what is wrong. But man has to decide if he will obey or disobey the precept of God. He decides whether or not he lives according to the will of God. Likewise, God will make a way out of no way in which that man who has sinned, who is lost, who has broken the law of God, who has crossed over the precepts of God, can be redeemed and brought back into the grace and the mercy of God. He will even go so far as to, to make a way that a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice could stand in the place of man and take man's judgment for sin. And then he'll go so far as to robe himself in flesh and become that sacrifice and offer his own flesh, purchase the church by his his own blood, the book of Acts says, uh, he would become himself that sinful substitute or that substitute for sinful humanity. He would offer his flesh as a substitute for sinful man. He will make a way for man who has broken the precept of God to come back into the favor and grace of God, but he will not violate man's free will. 
He will not force anyone to accept that free gift of salvation. He'll give it to whosoever will. But even though it's to whosoever will, the man has to accept it. Amen? Now, the other end of that perspective is the purpose will of God or the purpose of will of God. That is God's deliberate purpose. What he has determined that he will do. And the purpose of God will come to pass. God will bring his purpose to pass regardless of what man does. That is what Paul has been talking about this whole chapter. This whole chapter has been about the purpose of God. God promised Abraham that he would bring forth a mighty nation from his seed and that from that nation ultimately the Messiah would come. That is God's purpose and God's purpose cannot be denied. It cannot be broken. It cannot be transgressed. And so God chose Jacob before he was ever born to fulfill that purpose and in the end Jacob has no choice in the matter. He can reject the salvation of God, but he cannot reject the purpose of God. God's going to use him for his purpose. God will have a promised people. They will come for the lineage of Abraham, and he's chosen Jacob over Esau as the conduit through which that lineage is going to flow. God made that decision. God made that decision based on his own sovereign power. Before the twins, Jacob and Esau, were ever born, he made that choice. He purposed, and he will cause his purpose to come to pass regardless of what Jacob and Esau think about it. Amen? So the purpose of God has been the subject of this whole chapter. Paul has established the fact that God will cause his purpose to be fulfilled. There will be a chosen nation. They will be used by God to produce the Messiah. And no action that any man does will ever thwart that purpose. It is the forever settled will of God. Amen? I said last Sunday when I was closing, the world right now is marching to the purpose of God. We can go to the polls in November and hope we can have an impact on the course of our nation, but it doesn't really matter who's in the White House or who's in the Supreme Court or who's in the State House. God's purpose is going to come to pass. There's not a man anywhere that can change the purpose of God. What was written in the book of Revelation is going to come to pass, and it's not going to come to pass according to my timetable, and it's not going to come to cast pass according to my plan. God knows he knew from the beginning his purpose and how he was going to bring it to pass and nobody's going to change that. Amen? So this is where the disconnect happens. Those who misinterpret Paul's statements in this chapter have made the mistake of assuming that the purpose will of God applies to the salvation of people. They assume that the sovereign will of God, that preordained that Israel would be chosen, would be the people that God would use to bring the Messiah into the world, also preordained the salvation of every individual in that nation. And so they assume from the argument that Paul is making then that 
God preordains the salvation of every member of the church. That simply is not true. They've missed the entire point of the chapter. Paul was never saying that God unconditionally determines the eternal fate of individuals in regards to their salvation before they're ever born. That was never his point. The point was that God has the right to sovereignly choose to use Israel to bring his purpose to pass, and it doesn't matter what Israel thinks about it. God has the right to sovereignly choose to use Pharaoh. And we, we talked about Pharaoh last week because that's what Paul talked about last week. Pharaoh was not a servant of God. Pharaoh was not in submission to God. Pharaoh was in rebellion against God. It doesn't matter. God's purpose is going to be brought to pass, and God chose Pharaoh. And he used Pharaoh, whether Pharaoh liked it or not, to bring his purpose to pass. Amen? So it's all been about the purpose of God. God chose Israel for a purpose, and he used Israel to fulfill that purpose. But the purpose will of God does not guarantee the salvation of the individual Israelite. If it did, then Paul would not have begun this chapter by expressing his profound burden for his kinsmen after the flesh who were separated from God. Do you remember we started the first three verses talking about the burden that Paul has for his kinsmen who are lost? And this whole discussion is about explaining how they can be Israel but be lost. It's because that the whole point of being Israel after the flesh, natural Israel, was about bringing the purpose of God to pass. It was never about salvation. Salvation was always based on faith and obedience. The Israelite wasn't saved because they were the child of Abraham. They were saved because they offered a sacrifice on an altar for their sins. That's what saved them. Faithful obedience to the word of God. Nobody was ever grafted into the family of God just because of who their last name, what their last name was or who their granddaddy was or the great, 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 great granddaddy was. It was always because of faithful obedience to the word of God. That's the system. That's the plan that was in place from the very beginning that's still in place right now. Amen? So in chapter 9, Paul is affirming God's right to sovereignly choose to use anybody he wants to use, even sinners. It doesn't matter. Pharaoh can be used. The president of the United States will be used. The president of, uh, of the United Nations will be used. God will use anybody he has to use to bring his purpose to pass. It will serve his purpose. And he'll even go so far, we saw with Pharaoh, as to harden their heart with regard to certain decisions in order to bring his purpose to pass. Men do not have the ability to stop or to change or to transgress the purpose will of God. Israel will be delivered from Egypt because God promised Abraham they're going to go. They're going to be there for 400. God told how many years? They're going to be there for 400 years. And when that time is full, I'm going to bring them out of Egypt. And nobody was going to change that. Moses couldn't change it, and Pharaoh couldn't change it. There wasn't anybody that could change what God said he was going to do. He told Abraham, I'm going to bring it to pass, and God was going to bring it to pass. Amen? 
So God chose Israel by his sovereign power to accomplish his purpose. That sovereign act of God stands independent of the decisions that each Israelite has to make in regards to their own salvation. They decide whether or not they obey the law of God. They decide. We, we, we see the Israelites in the wilderness, and we see again and again a rebellion against God and judgment that falls in the camp of the Israelites and those people that rebelled against Moses and rebelled against God swallowed up by the earth. That's judgment. They decided to reject God. They decided, even though where they were Israelites, they decided to reject God. And so God judged them. In no way is Paul saying that the will of God forces men to become sinners or that sinful men can find fault with God because God's will made them into sinners. Now, what I've done is I've raced ahead of the text. I've kind of summarized the rest of chapter 9 and a good portion of chapter 10. And I've dealt with this issue of the will of God in regards to the question of personal salvation. Paul, however, does not race immediately to the answer. As a matter of fact, first he addresses the arrogance from which the question springs. The next two verses of chapter 9 establish the fact that we don't have the right to question God in this matter because we cannot stand in judgment. We, we don't have the right to try to judge God. We are created beings, and God is our creator. And how can the thing that was made ever judge the thing that made it? Chapter 20, or verse 20, Romans chapter 9, verse 20 says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? To understand the tone that Paul is using here, we really need to key in on the verb repliest. There in the English, the verb repliest comes from a, a Greek word that means to talk back. Now, for all you parents that have teenage children, it means talk back in the same way you say it to your children when you say, don't talk back to me. It, that idea of talking back has a very strong negative connotation, includes the idea of making unjustified accusations. You don't have the right to talk to me like that. I'm your dad. When I say it, it goes. Don't talk back to me. Anybody else feel that way? Amen. Sometimes you got to put your foot down. That idea of talking back, it's rebellious. It's arrogant. It, 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 it's negative. It, it, it has... It has within it the unjust accusation that I have the right to determine my own way. I've learned that since my kids got to be 14 and 15 years old, they know everything in the world. I don't know anything. I didn't know that before. Amen. They learned a whole lot real fast. They don't have the right to tell me they know everything. So I tell them don't talk back. What I say, it's settled. I got a lot of experience you don't have yet. Amen. So that word that he used there has an air of contention about it. And it gives us some insight into Paul's response and the tone of Paul's response. Paul sees the question in the previous verse about the will of God as his accuser's way of talking back to God. 
Here we've been through all this explanation of the purpose of God and what God's doing and how God's sovereign and God will do what he wants to do. And the accuser, the, the questioner is saying, well, wait a minute, I've got an objection. I, I've got a question. I've got, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back God. How arrogant can you be to think that you can talk back to God, that you can debate with God, that you can take a, a debater's stance with God and try to back God into a corner? That's what Paul perceives, that the question that is happening here, the way it's being presented, that's what it is. And so Paul's immediate response is to say, Oh man, who art thou that you would talk back to God? Who are you, man, that you would talk back to God? By, by throwing that word man in there, Paul is emphasizing the roles that are being played here. He's emphasizing the fact that you, you're just the product of the dust of the earth. God made you. He breathed life into you. You don't have any right to talk back to God. Amen? That's tight, but it's right. It's a strong word, but it's the right word. Amen? Make no mistake about it. That is a rebuke. That is a rebuke towards the individual asking the question. Anybody who takes verse 19 and tries to build a positive doctrine out of it has to overlook verse 20. Because verse 20 is an absolute rebuke to the question in verse 19. Before Paul even begins to answer the question, he first rebukes the arrogance from which the question arises. He says, shall the thing formed... Say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? That's a reference back to Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 16, which talks about the clay, and Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 9, which talks about the vessel. And, and in those passages, the clay and the vessel are portrayed as attempting to judge the potter who's fashioned them. It's really uh, uh, an absurd idea that the, the potter fashions a pot, and then the pot says to the potter, why have you made me this way? You've done going and mess things up. Look what a wreck you've made out of me. You've really done an awful job. Well, you really mess things up. And the pot, both Isaiah and Jeremiah later and Paul now are declaring the pot doesn't have that right. Amen? The prophet Isaiah was telling the nation of Israel then what Paul is telling them now. You don't have the right to judge God's motives. You don't have the right to judge God. They don't even have the right to ask the question. God is God. He is the potter. We are the clay. And we don't have the right to question him. The potter decides how he uses the clay. And once his decision is made, the vessel has been formed that vessel has no right. It is the height of arrogance. It is, the, it is the, the, the epitome of arrogance for the vessel to step back and criticize the potter. Now, the potter and clay analogy was also used by the prophet Jeremiah. And in that text, Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 5 and 6, Jeremiah sets the context for the potter-clay analogy as it's used through Scripture. And this is what he says. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. The potter-clay analogy deals with the nation of Israel as a whole, not with individuals. 
It deals with the house of Israel. And Paul's use of this analogy at this point in chapter 9, at this point in the argument, reinforces the point that we're talking about the way God has used the nation of Israel as a whole, according to his purpose, not the salvation of individuals. That's not what the analogy is about. God is the potter, and the nation of Israel is the clay in his hands. And God has used the house of Israel to bring his purpose to pass. Verse 21 says, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Now Paul gets a little more specific about God's authority over the clay because he is sovereign. It is his right to determine what he fashions from the clay. He can take the same lump, one lump of clay, and he can fashion two different vessels. He can make one vessel that is a vessel of honor from one piece of that lump, and he can make another vessel that is a vessel of dishonor from the same lump, just another piece. Now, this is the point where Paul starts to steer the discussion back to the point. It is God's sovereign right to establish a distinction between natural Israel and spiritual Israel. It is God's right to take the one lump, which is Israel, and if God chooses it, it is his right to fashion from the same lump two different vessels. One under dishonor and one under honor. He can determine that there will be a natural carnal Israel that is consigned to dishonor and a spiritual Israel that is reserved for honor. That's God's right. That is his power over the lump of clay that is the nation of Israel. And just as the clay cannot question or rebuke the potter, the carnal Jew cannot judge God for rejecting those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the potter's right. He takes the same lump and he can make a vessel of dishonor from the same lump that he makes a vessel of honor out of. This verse is the key to understanding the whole passage. Those who are in error point to this verse and say that a man has no power over his eternal destiny because it's God who has the power over the clay. And God decides if a lump will be made into a vessel of honor or a vessel of of dishonor. But once again, they missed the point. The point isn't that one lump is made into either or. The point was that one lump was made into both. One lump was made into a vessel of honor and, and, and another vessel under dishonor. It's God who has the power over the clay. And the lump is Israel. And it is God's sovereign right the vessels that he will make for the nation of Israel. That is his right to choose to do so. And the vessels represented here are natural Israel and spiritual Israel, one to honor and one to dishonor. We started talking about natural Israel and spiritual Israel all the way back in verse 4. And we've been talking about it ever since. 
Because God, by his sovereign will, can decide that he'll take a portion of Israel, that portion which believes on Jesus Christ, which accepts the gospel of Jesus Christ, and make of them a vessel unto honor, and reject the rest, and make of them a vessel unto dishonor. Amen? That's his sovereign will. But it still stands that the fate of the individual is in the hands of the individual. Every Jew will ultimately decide for themselves how they will respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And their response will determine which vessel they're in. Amen? Every Jew makes that choice for themselves. God has never made and he will never make that choice for any man. Verse 22 says, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? These last three verses of today's passage, Paul begins his specific response to the question in verse 19. This response is going to last for several weeks. But he begins here. God used Israel to bring his purpose to pass, even though through much of Israel's history, they were in rebellion against him. They were backslidden. They, they didn't follow God. They didn't obey God. For much of their history, they were in rebellion against God. But God endured natural Israel with much patience as he brought his purpose to pass. The, the ultimate purpose of Israel was to bring forth the Messiah into the world. The ultimate purpose of Israel was that, that baby Jesus would be born in a manger and that the Savior of the world would come. So in these, these final three verses, Paul says God endured Israel. He, he had mercy on Israel, even when they were unfaithful to him because he was looking towards his purpose. But now he adds another dimension to the purpose of God, a, a, a further extension of the purpose of God is revealed in these three verses. God used natural Israel to bring the other Israel, spiritual Israel, into existence. And when we get to verse 24, we're going to discover that spiritual Israel is not as exclusive as natural Israel. The Gentiles are also a part of, of the promise of God and the purpose of God. And the tragic irony here is that God used the Israelites not just to bring the Messiah, but to bring the church. And then they rejected the Messiah. And, and by rejecting the Messiah, they refused to become a part of the church that God brought out of Israel. That one lump, God fashioned two vessels. And they chose not to become a part of that vessel of honor. What Paul says is, what if God can endure this? What if he can endure this in order to bring that to pass? What if God endured the vessels of wrath in order to bring forth vessels of mercy? What if God dealt with and endured and had mercy on the, the, the people who hardened their hearts and turned their back on him and rejected him for all those years just so that he could bring out of them a people that he would shower with his mercy and could show his glory to the world through these vessels of mercy? What if God bears with the nation of Israel through its unfaithfulness in order to bring his ultimate purpose to pass and to bring not only the Messiah, but also the church into being through them? 
in this context, the vessels of wrath would be carnal, natural Israel who condemned themselves by their own disbelief. And we see something notable about God here. God is patient with those who reject him. God is patient with those who turn their back on him. God is patient with those who hear his word, who see his truth, but who stumble and hesitate to accept it or who back away from it or turn their back on him. He is patient. His judgment is certain, but it's not always swift. It doesn't always come immediately. God gives plenty of opportunity for repentance. God gives plenty of chance for people to find their way back to the mercy of God. He bears with the nation of Israel through times of resurgence and revival when they turn their heart back to him, then through times of rejection for hundreds and hundreds of years when they turn their back on him. He bears with them. He has mercy on them. He's a very patient God. He gives plenty of opportunity for people to come to the place of repentance. It's his will that all men everywhere would come to that place of repentance. So he gives plenty of opportunity for that to happen. But some people interpret God's patience as indifference. And they presume that they have a license to continue in sin since God hasn't judged them. They get the idea that God obviously doesn't care that I'm living this way. Because look here, I haven't been judged. Matter of fact, I'm being blessed. I'm at the best time of my life. God doesn't care. It's, it's very obvious. That I've heard all that preaching. I, I felt the conviction of God, but, but you know, I haven't ever responded to it. And look, look where I am. God, God hasn't, he hasn't judged me. He hasn't poured his wrath out on me. There's a very strong message here. Don't mistake the patience of God for his approval. Because that with which he was long-suffering eventually became the vessel of wrath eventually endured the judgment of God. And he's shown in his word what he requires. He's shown in his word what he will ultimately, the standard he's going to ultimately hold each and every one of us to. And it doesn't matter our perception of his will or his righteousness or his mercy or his judgment. It matters what that word says because he's going to judge us by that word. And one of these days... If you try the patience of God long enough, sooner or later it runs out. It may just be when the final grain of sand clicks through the, the hourglass of your life and you take your last breath, but sooner or later the mercy of God ends. Sooner or later you push it too far. He's a merciful God. Don't mistake his mercy for something that it is not. Verse 23 says, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. God was patient with natural carnal Israel because he was looking ahead to spiritual Israel. He didn't wipe out the nation of Israel in its many years of backsliding when he could have and probably should have. He didn't because he had a greater purpose. He was patient with them. Not because he approved of their sin, but because he was ultimately going to use them to bring forth vessels of mercy.
to make known the riches of his glory, to make known the riches of his mercy through the church. Note the, the distinguishing characteristic between natural Israel and spiritual Israel is the mercy of God. It's those that are in the church. It's not that they're somehow better than those that are not in the church. It's not that they're somehow, the spiritual Israel is somehow better than natural Israel. It's that the, those that are in the church have by virtue of their faith and obedience to the word of God been showered with the mercy of God. That was God's plan all along. He, he would endure. He would have mercy. He would be long-suffering with natural Israel because he knew he was going to bring forth a spiritual Israel, vessels of mercy that he would use to show forth his glory and his majesty. That's the beauty of the thing. And, and the wonder of it all is that no unbelieving Jew, no individual vessel of wrath has to remain that way. Natural Israel may be condemned to the judgments of God, but any individual Jew could choose for themselves how they will respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if they turn their heart towards God, then they become vessels of mercy, not vessels of wrath. That they repent of their sins. If they get baptized in the name of Jesus, if they obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, he fills them with a the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He will make them into a vessel of mercy. Paul is not in these verses condemning all of Israel. He is not condemning the entire nation. What he's showing is salvation is possible to anybody who will. Whosoever will answer the call of God. Verse 24 says, Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And here's where Paul expands the whole concept. Now we see clearly that spiritual Israel is indeed the church, and the church is not exclusive. It, it's not exclusive to nationality or an ethnicity. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you're a child of Abraham or not. It doesn't matter whether you've got the pedigree and the heritage or not. God has extended his mercy to both Jews and Gentiles, and the grace of God is extended to whosoever will. It didn't matter whether you were born of the seed of Abraham. It mattered whether or not you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we've left the whole idea that oh we could be talking about the fact that an individual Israelite should have been saved or should have been condemned because of their heritage or who they were and what God decided. We've entered the realm now that anybody, Gentile, it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter what your history is, anybody can find the grace of God and become a vessel of mercy. There's a tremendous play of word, play on words in this verse and I'm quickly coming to a close. But when Paul describes the vessels of mercy as those who are called, he uses two words in the Greek that combine together to make the word church. And if you're reading this letter in the Greek, you'd recognize instantly the play of words he's making. He uses the word ek and the word klesia, which mean to be called and to be called out of. And, and those words combined together, ecclesia, becomes the word that gets translated as church in the scripture. And what he's saying is that these vessels of mercy, they are the called out ones. 
They are the church. He's identifying the church. God has borne with Israel. He has been patient and long-suffering with Israel because he would ultimately use her to bring the Messiah into the world, and then through the Messiah, he would produce the church. That was the ultimate end. And the church is not limited just to the descendants of Abraham. The church is open to whosoever will, people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Anybody that desires can become a part of the church. All they have to do is be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the wonder of the message of salvation. Not that it's limited. Not that, you know, I have talked to people in the last year, in the last several months. I talked to an individual who has, has repented, has come to this, this church, has been a, who, who has bought this doctrine, hook, line, and sinker. You know, I just can't be saved. It, it was decided before I was born. I'm just, I'm just one of those. There is none of those. There is nobody on God's green earth that God ever made that does not have the opportunity to be saved. There isn't such a thing. God made you, and his will is that all men everywhere would come to repentance. That's his will. You have to decide whether or not you accept the grace of God, whether or not you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's your choice. Would you stand with me? This morning, Brother Ryan, would you come to the music? This morning, we see a greater purpose of God at work. We see God's patience. But we see the result of God's patience. God's patience leads to mercy. God's patience leads to a place where the mercy of God is poured out. God is long-suffering with those who have made themselves into vessels of wrath because he longs to see the day when they become vessels of mercy. Just because God's anger is not swift does not mean that it will not come. Just because God's judgment is not sudden does not mean that God will not judge. And just because God has given you space, time to find your way from a vessel of wrath to a vessel of mercy does not mean that you don't have the burden in yourself to make the choice of whether or not you will obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's your choice. You've got to decide.